Welcome to New City Church. This is Matt Freeman, and we are so thankful you are studying the Word of God with us. Jesus founded New City after our forever home, the New Jerusalem from Revelation 21. He wrote our mission statement to foster, strengthen, and grow an unashamed bride looking for Jesus' return. Let's lean completely on the anointing of the Holy Spirit to teach us all things from 1 John 2.27. God is so eager to teach you the depth of his word. Enjoy the study. All right, well, good morning again, and so glad all of you are here this morning. Thank you for being here. And we will, we will make this somewhat quick. I've got a couple of videos at the end to show all of you on some things going on in the United States, which I think will be interesting to talk about. And as I mentioned in the announcements, this, this is the last time we'll be in Hebrews, so we're going to finish the book today. And what just an incredible journey through God's word of laying out these deep theological truths about who Jesus is, and he is our high priest now, and the, and the draw from God to press on to spiritual maturity. It's just incredible. What an amazing book. And again, if you remember... It has nothing to do with your salvation. Remember that. This has always been and will always forever be a book to the believer to press on. And remember that if you don't take anything away from all of the messages we've gone through Hebrews verse by verse, just remember the entire book is structured around these five warnings. And they're a progression of the Christian falling away from Christ over time. So remember, you cannot lose your salvation. God has it. Remember what Jesus said? Uh, no man can take them out of my hand. I, I've got a hold of them. The Father got a hold of them. No man can pluck them from our hands. And you can't lose your salvation. And you could go through a whole series of reasons why, all the way back from the very beginning in Genesis with Noah on the ark, all the way to the end in Revelation with Christ in, in chapters 2 and 3 to the churches, but just keep that in mind. You did nothing to earn it, so you can do nothing to lose it. You just have to submit yourself and confess that Jesus is Lord and he will give it to you for eternity. But what's at risk is our reward and place in heaven afterwards. And that's why all of these dangers are here for the, for the Christian to not fail to mature and slip away. That's the key. So remember, it's a pattern and I still think this is so interesting how, how the Lord just whispered so softly to me that it moves like a snake. So the danger of drifting, then you, your heart gets hardened, then you fail to mature, then you commit willful sin, then you begin to refuse God, and then you commit more willful sin, you fail to mature even more, your heart gets even harder, and you drift further away, and then it goes back the other way. So it's this kind of like serpentine movement of falling away from Christ, and we all have to be on guard for it. There is, there is no Christian that is immune to it. How you become immune to it is you stay in God's word, you have a continual heart of repentance, and as Mason mentioned, a life of sacrifice to him and praise to him. That's the key. If you're in that, that posture, then the Lord will keep you on your walk with him. So as we close the book of Hebrews, just remember that this has been an incredible journey of hearing about God's plea to us to press on toward our new city. So Abraham looked for this city long before Jesus even promised to build it for us in John 14. Remember in John 14, Christ said, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I'll come again and bring you so that you may be where I am forever. And Hebrews 11 verse 10, for he looked, speaking of Abraham, for he looked for a city which hath foundations, whose builder and maker is God. So Abraham roamed around looking for this city that we didn't even know about, honestly, until you get to the New Testament. But he had some, something in mind. He had some knowledge in mind that caused him to walk around looking for a city whose builder and maker is God. That is incredible, which is why the end of the final message here, the Lord titled, Seek a New City. And before we opened up here, before we go any further, I forgot to pray to open the message. So let's pray for a minute. We always want to do that before we go into God's word. Lord, we thank you again for this time together. And God, we pray that you would anoint 
this message that, Lord, you would teach us everything as we close this book. And Lord, we pray that you would use it to empower us and to embolden us, to cause all of us to press on further and further toward our new city. Lord, we seek a city whose builder and maker is God, just as Abraham did all the way back in Genesis. Lord, we are looking toward our forever home. And God, we pray that there be nothing in this world that would keep us rooted here or distracted here, but that we would look to you for everything. We love you, God. Be with us and speak to us in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Amen. Sorry, I should have done that at the beginning. Uh, But in any case, there is nothing in this world that should take your eyes off of Jesus. Nothing. And your forever home, the new Jerusalem. You know, is there anything worthy of your affection? And we talked about that a lot earlier in Hebrews about where your heart's affection is. And is there anything worth giving it over to other than Jesus? And that's exactly what he meant by he is a jealous God. He is a jealous God because he's jealous of our affection. And so time is short. He really, he wants to remove any barrier in your life. And I, I am here to encourage all of you and all of you listening that are out traveling or, or at home, wherever you may be, if you have any stronghold in your life, you have got to take it and give it to him today. Do not delay because time is short. You never know when this time here ends. None of us do. We're not promised tomorrow. God will keep you as long as your, as your mission is still intact. As long as he has something for you to continue doing, he will guard your life. And you see that with Job. You see that all through the Bible. Uh, the second your mission ends and your ministry's over, whatever it is, he's going to take you home. Like he did Moses. When he said, <laughs> when Moses blew it and uh, struck the rock the second time and God said, okay, gather your things, you're coming home. Your ministry's in, ending. And Mo- you, can you imagine hearing that from God? Moses, I bet Moses' heart just sank like, what? What did I do? Okay, all right, well, I guess I need to prepare to anoint Joshua because he's taking my spot. I'm coming home. Elijah did the same thing with Elisha. Remember, Elijah was in the cave and he was crying out to God and he said, Lord, I am the only one left in all of Jerusalem that loves you and is serving you. And God's, God says back to him, no, hold on, I've got 7,000 that I've reserved that are serving me. You're, you're letting a lot of pride sink in here, Elijah. Your ministry's over. You're going to anoint Elisha. You're coming home. And so you see that kind of modeled throughout the Bible. So it's even more important that you and I keep our heart in the right spot toward, Lord, toward the Lord and serving him. So it, Last week, we finished on Hebrews 11, or 13, verses 11 and 12, and verse 13 today picks up on this theme, so I just want to cover these two verses real, real quick to lay the groundwork from last week. For the bodies of those beasts whose blood is brought into the sanctuary by the high priest for sin are burned without the camp. Wherefore, Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered without the gate. So remember what they're talking about is Yom Kippur, the day of atonement. The Yom Kippur sacrifice was not burned on the altar like the other sacrifices. The body of that sacrifice and the remains were were taken outside the camp of Jerusalem, beyond the gates of the city, and they were burned entirely. That's all in Leviticus 16, verse 27. But the day of atonement, remember after they did that, that was the one day the high priest could enter the Holy of Holies. Only after taking something out of the city, burning it in its entirety, then could the high priest walk into the presence of the living God in the Holy of Holies. So it's a model for us today. Remember, the high priest could not eat of the sacrifice. It had to be consumed entirely. But today, however, the believer can eat of Jesus' sacrifice which took place outside the gate. That's what the Lord is making the connection for us on. Burning the Yom Kippur offering outside the gate also portrayed the removal of sin from the camp of the people. You had to get it out. You had to uproot it and take it away. And Jesus, as our final Yom Kippur sacrifice, is the only one that could take the sin away. And he had to go outside the gate 
to be burned or crucified in in his entirety so that you and I could participate to get into the Holy of Holies anytime you want now. It's not just once a year. So you, and and the church doesn't really understand this entirely, but we have a greater privilege today than the most privileged person in the entire Old Testament. The high priest could only have that access to God once per year. And you had to be of a certain lineage. You had to work your way up and be anointed as the high priest. It was a very few select number of people. But today, if you are born again and in Christ, you have a greater privilege than that high priest because you can go into the Holy of Holies anytime you want. You can walk in to the throne room of the universe by the authority and the blood of Jesus and sit in the presence of God. It's incredible. And what I'm encouraging all of us to do is take advantage of that. So if you don't have, if you have not laid something down in your life at the feet of Jesus, do that. You've got to do that. And you have the privilege to go into the throne room where the blood has been sprinkled and to lay it on the authority of Jesus and let him take that off of you. Okay, the Holy Spirit, remember, uses camp in verse 11, but gate in verse 12, because Jesus literally was taken outside the camp of Judaism while being brought also outside the gate of Jerusalem. So both being true. And at the time, this was written before 70 AD, but while the temple was still standing, but Jesus had been crucified. And so he was, it was a call to the Jews also who were continuing these daily sacrifices that they needed to stop that and press on to the sacrifice of Christ that is once and for all. That's the key for us to learn as well today. Okay, so starting up today in verse 13, building off of that, let us go forth therefore unto him without the camp bearing his reproach. So notice that God's using this present tense call to start this verse. He's not saying they went outside or they should have gone outside. It's a continual, continual present action. Go forth unto him. Do it today. Do it back then. Do it today. Go unto Jesus. We've got to go to him. You've got to leave the camp of, and you can fill in the blank to whatever is, is strangling your life. You've got to leave that camp and go forth bearing whatever you are carrying to Jesus. Okay, look at Hebrews 11 verse 26 when we covered this esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he had respect unto the recompense of the reward. Remember, this is speaking of Moses. He esteemed the reproach of Christ greater than anything the world had to offer. And as a result, Moses forsook everything of this world because if he was to get trapped into it or to seek it, the reproach of Christ, the correction of God to him was much more endearing and he didn't want to take it on himself, right? It was, that was worth more. Not enduring that reproach was worth more than what anything the treasure of the world could offer him. And so he, he didn't want that. He took himself out of Egypt It's amazing when you look at Moses in ancient texts, if you go and look up his life as a leader in Egypt, he led wars against Ethiopia. He was a very intelligent general. He knew the language. He knew about math and science and brilliant man. And you don't really kind of pick that up sometimes in the the Bible when you're reading about him. But he had an amazing life. And he could have had anything he wanted. He could have just served Pharaoh in his court in the highest height of the nation that ruled the world and had anything he wanted, but he chose not to because he chose the call of God instead. He, he esteemed Christ and his reproach more than all of that, than frankly ruling the world, and Moses could have done it. So just an amazing, amazing man. Okay, in verse 14, for here we have, have we no continuing city, but we seek one to come. Okay, you're seeking a new city. Now, if you weren't here for the Revelation study, maybe go back and listen to that on the podcast. Uh, 
or on YouTube or wherever, but look at these first five verses in Revelation 21, starting in verse one here. And I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth were passed away and there was no more sea. And I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. And God himself shall be with them and be their God, and God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. And there shall be no more death, neither sorrow, nor crying, neither shall be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. And he that sat upon the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said unto me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. This is the new city. So what, what the Holy Spirit showed John at the end of Revelation, starting in chapter 21, occurs after the millennium. So you and I, during the millennium, will have access back and forth between our new city, the new Jerusalem, and earth as Jesus is building his kingdom for a thousand years. At the end of it, the Lord recreates heaven and earth again. He puts it all back together again, and the new Jerusalem descends out of heaven and hovers over the earth. And when you step out of the millennium into eternity, somehow we go back and forth. There are gates in the new city. Remember, there are 12 gates named after each of the 12 tribes of Israel. The foundations of those gates are the apostles that were the 12 the 12 apostles in the New Testament that followed Jesus. And it's got dimensions. It's 1,500 miles uh, wide, length, width, and height. And it's probably multidimensional. It's going to be incredible. It's gigantic. And you and I have access to it for eternity. If you're in the church, it's your forever home. Now, where you live in the city will, will differ based on your response to God's call on your life and what you do in that city, what your role is in ministering with the Lord. And there are gates because somehow people on earth may try to get into it again that aren't welcome at that time. And there's a lot of mystery surrounding it that you can ask, sit down and ask yourself. There's more things that, for me, it brings up more questions than answers when you dig into it of what is going on here. Why are there gates? Why, are, why is he wiping away tears from their eyes at this point? You know, that I think that has something to do with loss of opportunity. I don't think it has anything to do with sorrow. I think there's going to be some people very, uh, very regretful for how, what little they did in their lives in serving the Lord at this point. But in any case, we're going to go through the millennium and serve him and go back and forth and ministering on the earth and helping him build his kingdom for a thousand years Okay, so by him, therefore, let us offer the sacrifice of praise to God continually. That is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. It's incredible that Mason talked about this at the end of worship today. But remember that we are kings and priests from 1 Peter 2.9. But ye are a chosen generation, a royal, royalty is a king, a royal priesthood. So you and I are kings and priests in the church, a peculiar people that ye should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Remember, Melchizedek was a king and a priest in Genesis. It was then forbidden once God founded the nation of Israel. Kings and priests had to be separate. Then Jesus shows up. He's a king and a priest. Then he forms the church and you and I are kings and priests. So there's only three groups of people in the entire Bible that are kings and priests, Melchizedek, Christ, and us. And then you see that again in Revelation 4 and 5 with the 24 elders, that's representing us, because they say, he has made us kings and priests to our God by his blood. So we are responsible as a priest to offer some kind of sacrifice today. But that sacrifice looks different than the blood of animals. That sacrifice today is a continual praise to God. It's continual. It's the fruit of our lips giving thanks to his name. And you and I are responsible for that. 
So a thankful heart and posture of gratitude, it's really, frankly, it's uncommon today. It really is. It's hard finding people that are truly grateful for anything in their lives. It's a rarity. It's hard to find people with that kind of posture, but that's the posture we should all have. Count it all joy, right? If there's a trial in your life, you have to count it joy. Count it joy if, if, you get, if you're living for the Lord and you're serving him, and all of a sudden one day you get fired from your job and you don't know how you're gonna pay your bills next week, count it all joy, the Bible says, because God's going to do something supernatural in your life and be your provider. But a thankful heart and posture of gratitude. Look at Psalms 100 verse four. Enter into his gates with what? With thanksgiving and into his courts with praise. Be thankful unto him and bless his name. You should start off, I would encourage all of you, when you go to pray, start off with thanking him for something. Just start with that posture of, Lord, we thank you for gathering us today. Lord, we thank you for your provision over our lives today. We thank you for this meal in front of us today. We thank you for your provision over our children today. Whatever it is, just off your lips and off your tongue, offer him something to be thankful for. It's amazing how just that simple little task can put your heart in the right spot in a time of prayer. Look at Romans 1 verse 21. Because that when they knew God, they glorified him not as God. Neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations and their foolish heart was darkened. See, not being thankful has a response the other way. When you're not thankful, you can become vain in your own imagination and your foolish heart can be darkened. There's a, there's a key to your spiritual life and that's one of continual praise and thanksgiving to God. So keep that in mind. Our lips are a very powerful instrument. Look at Proverbs 8 verse 6. Hear for I will speak of excellent things and the opening of my lips shall be right things. When you, when you get to Revelation 12, what is one of the titles of Satan? He is an accuser of the brethren. And anytime you're in a church setting or in a Sunday school setting or in a, a setting with family members or coworkers or whoever, when, they are, when you hear people accusing others and accusations, railing accusations of other people, just know that doctrine is not from God. When they're trying to tear people down or accuse them of something or slander their character, it's Jesus calls it murder. And that accusation is much more damaging than any of us really understand or realize because you then are putting seeds of accusations in the heart of someone else and they carry that around with them and view someone else's character through that lens continually. And it'll... It, it can set someone on the wrong track, especially as a Christian. If a Christian's doing it, it's really, it really sets people on the wrong track because they look at, well, gosh, Matt is living for the Lord and, and studying the Bible and praying and everything, and he's, he's talking about these people this way. I guess I can too, or whoever, you know, not just me, all of you. Okay, look at Psalms 141, verse three. Set a watch, O Lord, before my mouth. Keep the door of my lips. You could pray that. Set a watch. Let the Lord set a watch before your mouth that anytime something foul or that you shouldn't say comes off your tongue or is about to, that he stops it immediately and just shuts your mouth. <laughs> it's, he, you'll find if you make that prayer a part of your life, you will find more often than not, you will start catching yourself. Okay, I shouldn't say that about my kids. I shouldn't act that way, whatever it is. Look at Psalms 119 verse 13. With my lips have I declared all the judgments of thy mouth. All the judgments. With my lips have I declared all of the judgments. Whose judgments? God's. So you want to be in that position where you are declaring his word. Psalms 119 verse 171. My lips shall utter praise when thou hast taught me thy statutes. If you're not in his word, you can't be taught his statutes. And if you can't be taught his statutes, it's hard for your lips to utter praise. 
And so you've got to be in his word continually. Psalms 120 verse 2, deliver my soul, O Lord, from lying lips and from a deceitful tongue. So you can pray that. Psalms 140 verse 3, they have sharpened their tongues like a serpent. Adder's poison is under their lips. Those are for people that would speak ill of you or accuse the brethren. Okay, their tongues are sharp. Gossip is the most pain, one of the most painful sins you can be involved in, to be in it or to be a receptor of it. Gossip tears people apart. It just does. Look at 1 Peter 3.10. For he that will love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips that they may speak no guile. That's our key. We want to live a life of continual praise So we've got to refrain our tongue and get control of it. Think about a horse. If you put a bit in its mouth, this is why God uses this example in James. If you bridle a horse's mouth, a bit in its tongue, you can control the entire body of the horse. The same is true for the Christians. If if we get control of our tongues, we can steer the entire body of Christ the right way. Okay, verse 16 here. But to do good and to communicate, forget not... For with such sacrifices, God is well pleased. So a challenge question for all of us, is God pleased with your speech? Do you open your prayers with a heart of gratitude and thanking him for everything? Galatians 6 verse 6, let him that is taught in the word communicate unto him that teacheth in all good things. So you need to be taught in the word, not taught in a leadership book, not taught in a commentary, you need to be taught in the word of God so that you can communicate and teach and bridle your lips. Philippians 4 verse 14, notwithstanding ye have well done that ye did communicate with my affliction. 1 Timothy 6 verse 18, that they do good, that they be rich in good works, ready to distribute, willing to communicate. So doing good and being rich in good works you're willing to communicate the things of God. Okay, verse 17 here, obey them that have rule over you and submit yourselves for they watch for your souls as they that must give account. That's a scary promise. That they may do it with joy and not with grief for that is unprofitable for you. Okay, remember your soul, you are a triune being, you're made of body, soul, and spirit. The body is your temporal indwelling. The soul is is comprised of your mind, will, and emotions, and your spirit is the piece of you that is eternal, made in God's image, the peace of God that indwells you, that lasts forever. It's eternal. So your soul, obey them that have rule over you and submit yourselves, for they watch for your souls. Isn't that interesting? God uses that word here. Those that are in your life that that are leading you, praying with you, teaching you God's word, They can't watch over your spirit. Only Christ can do that. What they can do is see things in your life that go awry, your mind, will, and emotions, and try to help you learn in the the word of God to correct that and to sharpen that. And so you've got to be mindful of them. Okay, in Hebrews, I'm sorry, that's not verse, yeah, no, that was Hebrews 13, verse 7. Remember last week we covered this. Remember them which have the rule over you again. Twice in chapter 13, remember them, obey them that have the rule over you, who have spoken unto you the word of God, whose faith follow considering the end of their conversation. Remember that word in the Greek really means behavior. Consider their behavior. So when God places someone in your life who's leading and teaching and pouring into you, pay attention. You know, God has positioned their heart to care for you deeply. And so if that person comes to you and says, hey, I see this in your life and it's concerning, or the Lord has laid this on my heart to really be praying for you about this, listen to them, take heed of what they're saying because God has gifted them in some way and positioned their heart to deeply care for your well-being. The heart of a good pastor, teacher, Bible leader, anyone is someone that does that. And so just keep that in mind. So your obedience to spiritual leaders frees them 
to continue their ministry in joy, not in grief. So look at verse 17 again. This is a call to submission on both sides of the way God set up the church. Obey them that have the rule over you and submit yourselves for they watch for your souls, your mind, will, and emotion as they that must give account. So they've got to give account that they may do it with joy and not with grief. So if in that case, when someone in that position goes to someone and they ignore them and brush them off and tell them you're just being too whatever, fill in the blank, you're being too much of a spiritual bully or a Christian that just looks down on other people or you know, where's the grace for what's going on in my life, whatever it may be, when you don't listen, it's unprofitable for you and it causes grief in that person's life where they can't execute their ministry with joy because they're burdened. They're burdened by that lack of obedience. Okay, I hope that makes sense. It's a a call to submission on both sides. In verse 18 here, pray for us for we trust we have a good conscience and all things willing to live honestly. But I beseech you rather to do this that I may be restored to you the sooner. You know, praying for the spiritual leaders in your life is really important. It's very important. God admonished us to do that in 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 25. Brethren, pray for us. Very simple, short verse. <laughs> Brethren, pray for us. 2 Thessalonians 3, 1. Finally, brethren, pray for us that the word of the Lord may have free course and be glorified even as it is with you. So the Holy Spirit's anticipating that the prayers of the brethren will have a direct result in the, in the penmen being restored to them sooner. So see, prayer is so powerful. Pray for us that may, we may be restored to you. It's the Lord's calling the body to prayer for these people. Okay, the final six verses of the, of the book here are the closing thoughts from God. And, and it's an amazing final remarks, closing remarks, benediction, whatever you, you want to call it. But starting in verse 20 here. Now the God of peace that brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you perfect in every good work to do his will, working in you that which is well-pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Okay, the God of peace can bring you through any trial or need. He's the great shepherd. There's three Psalms all in a row, Psalms 22, 23, and 24, that are kind of the shepherd Psalms. And they, they all go together. Psalms 22 is first person singular of Jesus on the cross before crucifixion was even invented by the Persians, uh, later adopted by the Greeks and the Romans, and then it was obviously used as capital punishment in the Roman Empire. But he's, he is in first person singular in Psalms 22, crying out from the cross. It starts off, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And Jesus is quoting that on the cross in the New Testament. But God is the God of peace, not just a God. See, there's only one Prince of Peace. His name's Jesus. There's only one. He is the God of peace. Philippians 4, verse 7. And the peace of God, which passeth all understanding, shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. The peace of God. Okay, there's nine statements in verses 20 and 21 in those two verses. God is the God of peace. God brought Jesus up from the dead. And so he can do the same for you. He's the great shepherd. Our needs are met through the blood of the eternal covenant, which is Christ alone. God can make you perfect, starts in verse 21. He supplies what is lacking. He equips us to do his work. He's working in us that which is well-pleasing. And God is working all of this through Jesus Christ. And his glory will be forever and ever. So there's nine statements that, that God's making here that open up these last six verses. And so as a result, there are actually five characteristics of a mature Christian. Okay, there must be perfection in every good work. And perfection where? In Christ, not in yourself. The goal of maturity is to do the will of God. If you are a mature believer, a mature Christian, 
your goal is to do the will of God. The source of maturity is God working in us that which is well-pleasing in his sight, which means that means the maturity is through the Messiah alone. You cannot have spiritual maturity until you submit yourself to God and let Christ work in and through your life. So the result of maturity is to glorify God forever and ever. That's the resulting outcome of a mature Christian. You are to be, as he's told Daniel, brighter than the stars of heaven forever and ever. That's the goal of the mature Christian. Okay, the final four verses here. And I beseech you, brethren, suffer the word of exhortation, for I have written a letter unto you in few words. Know ye that our brother Timothy is set at liberty, with whom, if he comes shortly, I will see you. Salute all them that have the rule over you. Again, admonishing those that are spiritual leaders in your life. And all the saints, they of Italy, salute you. Grace be with you all. Amen. Now, if you, if you search all of the Bible, uh, grace be with you all, it's used exclusively in every letter that Paul wrote. That's how he ends all of his letters. Really, that the Holy Spirit wrote through Paul. Paul didn't write it. God wrote it. Paul was the ghostwriter or the penman. And so it's just another hint that the fingerprints that God wrote this through Paul is, is probably true. Paul's the only one that journeyed with Timothy and had a, a huge heart for that young pastor, Timothy. And they were kind of uh, hooked at the hip together uh, in a lot of the New Testament. So pretty amazing that God left it anonymous, but there are also hints that Paul was the one that he used to write it. And we talked about that also at the beginning in the introduction to the book. Okay, so we're gonna, what I, what I want all of us to remember as we close this is that you have something laid up for you in heaven. Jesus said in Revelation 3, hold that fast which you have that no man take your crown. You and I have something, and I cannot stress this enough, because rewards in heaven are eternal. They are eternal. They don't go away. They do not perish. Put your treasure where neither moth nor rust can destroy, as Jesus said. They are for eternity. And so we have to take serious this call of living for God. And that's why Hebrews is such a powerful book that it is, it is admonishing us as the believer to press on and to live for him. These warnings, there is great loss to occur for the Christian that loses their grip on Jesus and drifts away, hardens their heart, fails to mature, commits willful sin, and refuses or apostatizes from God. Remember apostasy, it's just turning away from a Christian can apostatize and a non-believer can apostatize. It's just an act of turning away from God. Both yield different results, remember. Okay, so do not forsake your inheritance. That's the key for all of us as we close this. Do not forsake what is being laid up for you. And there's that verse, Revelation 3, verse 11. Behold, I come quickly. Hold that fast which thou hast, that no man take thy crown. Remember, there's a crown of life in James 1, 12 and Revelation 2, 10 a crown of righteousness in 2 Timothy 4.8, a crown of glory in 1 Peter 5.4, the crown imperishable in 1 Corinthians 9.25, the crown of rejoicing in 1 Thessalonians 2.19. And those are not, that's not an all-inclusive list. Remember, that's a list that the Lord gave us to give us a hint of what is going on. Now, how could you put more than one crown on your head? You know, think about that. You can't. Right now, if, I had, if there were two crowns laying up here, I could not put them both on my head, which means when you get there, it's outside of this three-dimensional realm. It has to be multidimensional, so you can put those on your head. It also has to be multidimensional because Jesus wears many crowns when he comes back. And in Revelation 4 and 5, we throw those crowns at the feet of the king in glory and praise to him. The rewards to the overcomer, remember, to eat of the tree of life in Revelation 2, 7, not heard of the second death in Revelation 2.11. If you're not familiar with the second death is, you can either be born twice and die once, or you can be born once and die twice. 
That's, and that's the key. So when you're born once and then you die and you don't accept Jesus, you are right now, if you die, you're in the bottomless pit in the center of the earth. Okay, as the Lord, as the Lord describes all throughout the Bible, down to the pit. The second death is at the end of Revelation, at the great white throne judgment, God opens these books and those that did not accept him are standing before him and they are cast into the lake of fire. That's the second death as Jesus calls it in Revelation. So you cannot be hurt by that, by being in Christ. Hidden manna, white stone, and a new name. You know, Jesus all through the Bible gives everyone a new name, it seems like. You know, Saul to Paul, uh, Simon to Peter, Abram to Abraham, Sarai to Sarah, and he's got a name for you. He has a white stone. Now that's a, it, he's using a Roman idiom there because the white stone was something in Rome that they carried around that gave them access. It gave them access to certain events. It gave them access to certain places in the market. It gave them access to be in the best suite, you know, sitting in the Colosseum or whatever it may be. You want that white stone on the other side of this. You want access. You don't want to be restrained like we talked about with the, the parable of the wedding. Remember the guy that didn't have the garments? We went through that in the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven. Uh, one thing I didn't mention too when we were studying that, that I should have told all of you, the way that you could think about it is the kingdom of God is encompassing everything in God's kingdom, the kingdom of heaven being a subset of that kingdom on the earth when you go through that, the millennial reign of Christ. So just kind of think about it that way to make it simple. But power over the nations, I don't think any of us in the room have that yet. Uh, that'll be a good one. White raiment, which also tells you there will be nations. So think about that. That could open up a whole study on its own. White raiment, the proper wedding attire, the white raiment, a pillar and a new name, sit with Christ on his throne and to inherit all things in Revelation 21, verse seven. Okay, so how are you an overcomer? It's really simple. You gotta remain loyal to God. Don't drift away. Don't let your heart, become hardened to his correction, the sooner, if you're going through anything in your life, the sooner that you submit yourself to God's correction, the better. Okay, you gotta be spiritually zealous for the Lord. Do not deny Jesus and do not defile your garments and keep the word of his patience in Revelation. All of those are in Revelation two and three and you can find that. Okay, so we're gonna watch a couple of videos real quick about if you haven't paid attention, um, again, or if you're just, you know, maybe somewhat oblivious like some of us of what's going on in the world. I don't, I don't make it a, a common practice at night to turn on the news or anything. It's just full of garbage. But, <laughs> but uh, there is a, what many would call a revival happening at Asbury University. And this to me is fascinating because it goes in with the theme of being watchful now, the term revival can mean a lot of different things to different people. And we've got a couple of little short videos we'll watch here. They're not that long. But the term revival can mean a lot of different things for different people. So I'm not talking about revival in the sense of people gathering and all of a sudden uh, gold dust is falling out of the sky and people are flailing on the floor and, and being slain in the spirit or whatever it is and... and these other, other kind of signs and wonders, right, that happen. Revival in the Bible is actually, it's all over the Bible if you, if you look at it. Nineveh had great revival just at Jonah's eight-word message. It was eight words and the entire city fell into deep, deep repentance and crying out to God. That biblically is revival, okay, of happening. Jonah said 40 days and this city's destroyed. I'm, I don't remember the exact quote, but it's only eight words. He preached nothing about repentance. He preached nothing about God forgiving them. He preached nothing about, hey, if you guys would get your act together and put on the sackcloth and ashes, God will leave you alone. He didn't say that. All he said was eight days and you're finished. Now, the king of Nineveh knew God's character, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and thought, hey, I know this God, I've heard of his character and his, his reputation. If we repent, maybe God will, will take his hand off. And that's exactly what happened. 
It's the greatest revival probably in the entire Bible because if you study Nineveh, there were about probably 2 million people living in that city at that time. The, the ancient text said you could get eight chariots all lined up next to each other and ride on the top of the wall of Nineveh. That's how big the city was. Remember in Jonah, he walks for days just to get into the city some once he gets into the gates. What an amazing revival. So these things happen all over the Bible. Look at Nehemiah. Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 3. I didn't put this in your notes, but this is incredible. If you don't remember the story of Nehemiah, remember Ezra goes back to try to rebuild the temple and they're not getting very far because the wall's destroyed and these enemies are attacking them. The other leaders of these nations are coming around going, hey, these pesky Jews want to stir up an insurrection in the land again. They want to stir up this strife against the government and they want to rebel and rebuild this temple so they can serve their God. You know, we don't want them to do that. So they're not getting very far. So Nehemiah is the cupbearer to the king. He goes to Artaxerxes and says, my heart is for my people. Give me the resources to go rebuild this wall. And, and Artaxerxes obviously says yes from the story. That triggers the start of the 70 weeks of Daniel. It's from that commandment unto the Messiah, the Prince of Israel, Jesus himself coming in, that there's 69 groupings of seven-year periods. We'll, we'll brush up on that when we get into prophecy some. For the 70th week of Daniel is a seven-year tribulation that we're waiting on. But while Nehemiah is rebuilding, look at this, Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 3. And they stood up in their place and read in the book of the law of the Lord their God, one fourth part of the day and another fourth part they confessed and worshiped the Lord their God. So when Nehemiah was rebuilding, these people had ignored God's word for decades and decades. They wanted nothing to do with it. And he finds the book of, of Moses, the Torah, and he stands up and just starts reading. And all of the people in the city come to what you, would, you should think of when you hear the word revival. They're coming to this place of revival. They're reading God's word for a quarter of the day, and they're worshiping and praising and repenting for the other quarter of the day. So for half the day, these people were submitting themselves to God. And it caught fire. The whole city started submitting themselves to God. Now, just some caveats here. There is a danger in looking for an experience. Okay, There's a, there is a danger in that. You don't have to go somewhere for the sole reason of experiencing God in some supernatural kind of mystical way. But in certain areas, you can experience something that God is doing. And so that's, that's kind of the difference. If you see people, people are coming literally from all over the world to Asbury, Kentucky right now. Uh, people are arriving from Finland, from Sweden, from Africa. They're driving in from all over North America, trying to get there because something is happening. And these people, it started on February the 8th. Okay, so this, and it, when I looked this morning, it's still going on. It's been 24-7 of nothing but prayer, repentance, crying out to God and worshiping him. There's no superstar, There's it's student-led. The auditorium is overflowing. They've opened up three other buildings to let people in. People are filling the lawns on this campus in Kentucky. Um, Asbury University is a Christian university. I don't know anything about them, so I'm not I'm not endorsing that university, but the Holy Spirit decided to rain down there for something, to start something. And these people, every clip I can find, I haven't seen anything that's made me go, oh, that's kind of weird. It's literally just been worship and repentance, everything I can find, which is exactly what was occurring in Nehemiah's day. You find it later on in Hezekiah's day. Remember, he finds the book of the, of the Lord and reads it when he's made king. They have to find it under some rubble in the temple and he finds it and he starts reading it. And all of Israel repents and is, is crying out to God for their people. And I pray that these, 
the thousands and thousands of people that are gathering there, I do pray that they are repenting on behalf of their nation and these people and that they are crying out to God that he starts something fresh in this land because we need it. This nation needs it badly. And so we're gonna watch these two clips real quick. And again, you dig into it. I don't, I haven't seen you know, hours of footage or anything, but I think this is amazing because it just reminded me of what was going on in Nehemiah's day, what was going on in Hezekiah's day. You see this in Acts, this revival. You see, and think of revival of a place where people are repenting and just worshiping God. That's how I like to think of it. Uh, John the Baptist, right? People were marching from all over Israel to come hear him speak. And it got, the, the crowd grew so large that the Pharisees had to come and say, what is going on here? This is, uh, the spirit of religion wanted to cripple that, that movement, right? Wait a minute, you guys can't do this. What's going on here? So yes, you need to test everything against scripture and see if it's, uh, does God do this? There are times that God does something new. I, for one, would have loved to have been at the Red Sea. You know, that's, a, that's something that he did new that we didn't get to see. That would have been a really cool thing to watch God move in that way. And the Holy Spirit is moving in some way because people are, literally the articles I read, uh, they are, the altar has been continually wet with tears because people are just humbling themselves before God. There could be, this could be one of those times that God sets a fire in the generation of our, of our youth in this nation that gets them turned back to him. Okay, so Aaron, start with the news clip first. I just want you guys to see this. Do the news clip uh, from this reporter in Kentucky. And then there's a short clip of someone videoing with their iPhone in the, in the auditorium during the worship service. For over 100 hours, people have filled the rows of Hughes Auditorium at Asbury University to worship. It's referred to now as a revival, but began on Wednesday spontaneously when students felt the urge to stay after the mandatory chapel service. We uh, are unique because three times a week we stop everything that we're doing uh, and gather for a chapel service together. This is just a service that uh, hasn't ended. Since Wednesday, the phenomenon has spread all throughout social media, with churches and other campuses bringing busloads of people to the chapel. Lloyd Nineber had never heard of Asbury before, but after seeing the social media posts, he drove seven hours from North Carolina to see the revival in Wilmore for himself. With what's going on in the world and all the darkness, and this was like light, like the, uh, you know, a light coming through. And so I wanted to see what was going on, see God moving. A revival like this is not uncommon for the university. Back in 1970, a similar revival lasted for two weeks. Hundreds of people from Kentucky, Indiana, and Michigan attended a testimony service on the campus of Asbury College in Wilmore. But since then, there has not been an act of worship of this length. Students and community members continue to find peace in dwelling and worshiping in the chapel and say they don't see signs of stopping anytime soon. Like we're just sitting with him and like it's just deeply gentle and like deeply loving. Um, and it's just a glimpse of what I think heaven will, will be like. Allison Perfader and many other students and faculty encourage people to come out to Asbury and see the revival for themselves. If it's for 20 minutes, if it's for a couple hours, if it's for the week, like you can't lose anything, you know, but you can gain like everything. In Wilmore, Hallie DeVore, W. Okay, this is a, just a clip inside.
That's pretty cool. <clears throat> Very cool. You know, look, we need to pray for those people and pray that they take that fire that is burning inside them and that when they go back to wherever they're from, that it continues and presses on. And you see, a, did you see on stage the guy sitting on the, on the drum or the little, I don't know what you call that thing, the box thing hitting? I'm picturing uh, Burkle, who's out, still out right now, but... I'm picturing Burkle in the throne room of the universe, sitting there on the box, you know, playing the keys and, and hitting, and we're all just singing around praising God. And you see that in Revelation 4 and 5, where it's just worship 24-7. It's just worship. And the angels are singing praise to God and the multitudes, and we're there, and we're just praising him in a posture and a heart of worship. And to see that, in a time like what we're living in right now with as, like you heard that guy, with as much evil as what's going on in the world, to see people that are just humbling themselves and submitting themselves to God, it's, it is incredible. It's incredible. Yeah, that's incredible. Yeah, for those that didn't hear Chad, he was saying Tucker Carlson wanted to go out there with a camera and, and the, the people of, at the university told him don't come because it's just about God. It's about the move of the Holy Spirit. And so the Holy Spirit does things like this throughout history. And it's not something, yes, you need to test it. You need to look into it. Is it real? You know, am I recommending we all get in the car and drive out there right now? No, not necessarily unless the Lord tells you to. But be watching for things like this to pour out on the world because what Jesus said is the wheat and the tares would grow up together. So when you see Christians repenting and turning to God in masses like that and people getting saved and getting the, catching fire from the Holy Spirit, that wheat's getting a little taller and a little taller and a little taller, which means the tares are too. And you see as much uh, bad as what's going on in the world. You can see that, but... It's pretty amazing. So look into that when you get home later it's, it's, and pray for them. So if you don't know the Lord, it's really simple to get born again. Romans 10, 9, that thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. It's that simple. So if you stumble across this video and you're not born again, please do that. Lord, we thank you so much again for the book of Hebrews and this time together. Lord, we pray that your word not return void. We pray that God, you would, Lord, set our community on fire for you and only you. Let people have a heart like Daniel that no matter where they are, they are on their knees looking toward you, crying out for themselves and confessing the sins of their people and their nation, and their land. God, we thank you that your spirit is very much alive today and that you move in your people. And Lord, we thank you, just as you said, Jesus, that you've got to put new wine in a new wineskin. And so, Lord, we pray for all of those new wineskins around the country that are being filled with your Holy Spirit, that they take that back to their communities, their schools, their families, their parents, their siblings, their jobs, and that Lord, little by little, it begin to spread in their own communities as well. That they get right with you, that they turn to you, that they live for you, that God, they, they have eyes to see you moving in their lives and in their families. Give them ears to hear from you, Lord, as you said in Revelation, he that hath an ear, hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. So Lord, our ears are open, our ears are attentive. We look to you and only you to overflow out of us. And God, we pray that 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 overflowing would be continual, as you said in the New Testament. Don't just get indwelled, 
but get full and overflowing of the Holy Spirit by the way we live our lives and sacrifice and praise to you. And Lord, let us take serious all of the warnings in Hebrews. As we go out into this world and live for you, God, we pray that you would gird us up in strength and give us the fortitude to endure anything the enemy throws at us. Let us remain on the rock that is Christ. We love you, God, and we praise you, and we thank you that you are not dead but alive, and we have a place by your side if we just so desire, and we thank you for that, God. Be with us as we leave this place and prepare our hearts to hear from you and our minds to hear from you all week and to gather again next week to study your word prophetically. Lord, as you said in Revelation 19, the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. And so Lord, all things prophetic point to you and let us see that lens through your word, cover to cover as we go through the Bible. And Lord, we love you and we thank you again for this time together. Be with us as we leave this place. For it's in your mighty name we pray, Jesus. Amen.